The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And our subject this evening is the sixth letter of the Baptist acrostic. That is the letter S, which stands for a saved church membership. It is a tenet of the Baptist church that before a person can become a member of the Lord's church, that he must be a born-again believer. Now, if you want to make a notation on your listening sheet tonight, this is also known as a regenerate church membership. Baptists believe in a regenerate church membership. I'll tell you why that's so important in just a few minutes. Now, in the acrostic, the S is a singular issue, a saved church membership. But what that does is open us up to a much, much broader discussion of the teachings of the church and much more than the letter alone suggests. It opens us up into a discussion of church membership and how that membership in the Lord's body is absolutely vital to the Christian life. And so we're going to discuss particulars of the S. We'll do that for sure. But I also think that what we need to do is to get the bigger picture of this and see how the Bible teaches that there is a duty of church membership. Oh, it should be clear from our earlier studies that when you become a Christian, that you're not automatically in the church. You don't get saved and you're automatically in the church. That doesn't happen with your salvation, but rather there is a decision to be made about it, something that you have to do in your own mind, decisions that have to be made about becoming a member of the Lord's church. A few weeks ago, I was on one of my walks, and I was listening to a podcast of Kentucky Sports Radio, and the podcast is exactly what the name suggests. It's a, it's a radio show dedicated to discussion of University of Kentucky sports, which, of course, would be next in importance to the Bible. And uh, Kentucky basketball is known as a religion in that state where I come from. Kentucky basketball is a religion, so I have to be very careful that I don't slip into idolatry as we talk about it. But for your information and your edification, perhaps, it is interesting that this particular podcast is the fifth most popular in the nation for sports programming. Now, that is kind of phenomenal in a way to think that, for most of you, to think that Kentucky sports would be so high on the priority of people in the rest of the country. But if you knew it like I know it, you'd certainly understand why that would happen. But it's phenomenal. And this particular radio show in the state of Kentucky beats out all other genres of radio, including country music. Now, that's saying something because country music is the number one genre in the entire country on the radio. So this this sports programming, this one program, beats out all of that in the state of Kentucky. Now, my message tonight is not actually a promo for Kentucky sports, but I, I would tell you that it's good for you to prefer that over ungodly things like 49ers football or something like that. So there's, there's a, a purpose in all of this. But I was listening to this program, and uh, sometimes rather than talking about sports, the host of that program will talk about some current issue, some crazy event that might have happened. And so it, it just so happened on this particular program that they were discussing a politician in Kentucky 
who had been thrown out of his church for immorality. Well, I was listening to them, and the hosts were commenting about it. And one of the hosts said, I don't think that the church ought to do something like that. Everybody ought to be a member of a church, or the church ought to welcome everybody, so anybody should be allowed to be a member of the church. Now, the host admitted that he himself was not an active member of a church, but he said that he was a Christian. And I'm always struck by those kinds of conversations, and I was just talking to myself as I was listening to that program, and I was, I was explaining why that not everybody can be a member of the church. So I, really, I wasn't talking to myself. I was talking to them, but they weren't listening to me. But I was telling them, this is why you can't do that. Uh, you, you can't have an immoral person who's a member of the church. And anyway, you don't have the right, somebody who's not a Christian, so, or, or doesn't act like a Christian, somebody who's not an, a, a part of the Lord's church, you certainly don't have a right to have an opinion about who God should or should not allow to be in his church. Christ has the right to define what his church is. Christ has the right to say who can be a member of that church, to set all the parameters for it. So it's the height of presumption for someone who doesn't profess a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to say who can be in the Lord's church and what God can and cannot do. But it's not just these sport notes, sports hosts that that don't know about the church. There are also many people who think that they do know about the church. This country has never seen such a sweeping redefinition of the church as it's seen in the last 50 years. Denominations struggle over who can be allowed into the church, who's to be admitted, as if there's nothing that would tell us who is to be a member of the church, as if we don't even know, we can't find this out. Recently, the United Methodist Church um, appointed its first openly gay bishop. Now, as it turns out, this was a female. They crossed that gender barrier a long time ago as far as whether you could have a female pastor of a church. But now they say it's all right to have a homosexual female pastor of the church. And so what they've done is to abandon doctrinal and moral standards that are found in the Word of God, and now people just accept any creeping, crawling thing that scurries into the, into the church. But that's okay, you can do that. Well, the problem with this is twofold. These churches are not truly Christian, they don't represent Christ, and the leaders aren't Christian, which is evidenced by the appointment of those who are guilty of probably the most heinous crime that's in all the Scriptures, the sin of homosexuality. So the Bible then is abandoned as a standard, and these hosts do what churches do, or they did. Personal opinions are what rule, and what usually is the personal opinion is the prevailing attitude of the day. And so people think they can tell God what he should and shouldn't do. Now, that opinion, of course, is not the timeless, absolute of the Word of God. Opinions change. We see that all the time. We're amazed at the way people's opinions can change in just a short amount of time. But whatever God said at the very first, He says at the end. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so He's always true to the Word that He's spoken. And if we could mark down one absolute from the Scriptures for God's church, it would be what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I've, I've used this scripture several times. We use it on Wednesday night, and you've heard it many times, and it certainly fits into what we're talking about the church. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14. 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now those are verses that cut to the chase. They're very clear. God's people must be separate. They must be holy. Now, if you go back to the first part of that chapter of 2 Corinthians 6, you'll find that Paul is speaking about approved ministers of God, that the leadership of the church has to be separate. They have to be holy before the message that they teach the people will filter down to them so that they're also holy. So the requirement is for all of us to be holy, and that distinction has to be maintained. This separation from evil must be maintained, and that's what the S in the Baptist acrostic is really about. We are saved, and saved people are different people. Saved people are holy people. John wrote in 1 John 2 and 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That verse tells us Christians will purify themselves. They don't look like the world's people. This isn't optional. If you're not being sanctified, then you're not saved. If you're not a separate, holy people... That's the only thing that's going to make the church different from the world. Now, if you look at the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is a chapter about church membership. Now, there's a lot that's said here about spiritual gifts. We're not going to go into that tonight. But instead, I just want to pick out some of these verses to show you what they say about the church, which is the body of Christ. Now, for instance, we look at verse number 12. It says, For as the body is one and hath many members... And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. I don't think that any of us would argue that these are definitely church verses. The membership, the Bible tells us, is membership in the body of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 30 says that we are members of his flesh and of his bones. And so you can't be more different from the world than to be a part of the flesh and bones of Jesus Christ. And so to be a member of the church, that means that that is a very defining thing, a very separating thing, as we've just said, a very different thing from anybody else. We are part of the flesh and the bones of Jesus Christ. And so partakers of the body of Christ would have to be saved. And that's because there aren't any others that belong to Christ. Now you go down to verse number 27 and we read this. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And that's what I want to talk to you about. You are the body of Christ and members in particular. You are redeemed. 
You have been placed into God's church by your belief in Christ and by your baptism, as verse 13 says, and each of you has a peculiar function in the Lord's church. You are together as a body that functions as a whole. Now, I want to begin our outline tonight with this. Association in membership. Now, if you'll think for just a minute about the previous letter of the acrostic, before S comes I, that stands for individual soul liberty. We studied that for the past couple of Sunday nights, and we saw that there was much to consider under the subject of soul liberty. But one of the major points that was made from that is that no one can be forced to become a Christian. No one can force a person to believe in Christ. A forced confession, a forced membership in the church would be exactly what we don't want because this is what we would end up with. We would be end up with an unregenerate church membership. We would have people in our church that aren't saved. Now, the Bible teaches us that we can't force anyone to become a member of the church. And yet, at the same time, it says we don't have an option. We don't have an option as Christians not to be a member of the Lord's church. Membership is expected. Christians do it. This is what Christians do. So everywhere in the New Testament, that is assumed that when a person is saved, he is also a member of the Lord's church. I mean, from the book of Acts, where we see the growth of the church and the outreach of the church, churches are always starting other churches. There is always this idea that the church is preeminent throughout the book of Acts. You go all the way back to the beginning of the church where Christ started it in, in Matthew in his personal ministry. The focus then starts to become the church. And you follow it all the way through into the book of Revelation where the church comes to the end where it meets its end becoming the bride of Christ and being at the marriage supper of the land. The focus is always the New Testament church. So there aren't any options here. There, there are no assumptions that any Christian would be a lone wolf Christian without association with the body of Christ. Now again, you look at Acts, you find there people are constantly being added to the church as they came to faith in Christ. On Pentecost, 3,000 were added. Acts chapter 5, thousands more were added. And we've noted in previous lessons that baptism and church membership aren't separated. That you get baptized, you become a member of the church. Those that are baptized are church people. So those 3,000 that got saved in Acts chapter 2 were added to the Lord's church. That's the expected thing. That's the way this whole thing works. You get saved, you've been commanded to be baptized, and in your baptism you become a member of the Lord's church. That's not an option. And then further, with baptism also comes the promise that there is an obligation that we will serve Christ. There just aren't any other options. It comes with a promise that they, a new life in Christ has begun. We, we serve Christ. Our lives are a commitment to the glory of Christ. Ephesians three twenty and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So the church is the way that we give glory to Christ. That's his method. God doesn't have another method. The church is what gives glory to Christ. So you can't do that if you're not a member of the church. You can't do it as a Lone Ranger Christian. And so you're to put your light on the candlestick 
to have a bright light for Christ and be joined in the association of the church. Well, as we know, there are some that object to this. And they say, well, church membership is not required for salvation. We can be saved without being a church member. And so they say that means that church membership is not really all that critical. It's not necessary. But haven't we just read the scripture that it is the church that glorifies Christ? That this is the way that God set this up? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? It's described as the bride of Christ. So if we don't love the church then we don't love what Christ loved. So yes, you can be saved without being a member of the church, but who is that person who really knows Christ? The one whose heart has been changed by the gospel of Christ, who wouldn't want to be in the special place of God's favor and where the life that Christ gave him can be used to glorify the one who gave it. And this is why the Bible says that a Christian will purify himself As he is purified. Purification only comes one way. And that's through obedience to the laws of Christ. This is the way that we honor him. And this is the way that we're holy. So the church is a very special thing. The scripture says that it is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church doesn't make truth. But it does uphold the truth. It defends the truth. Those that are separated from the church have no moorings. They're people that are blown about by every wind of doctrine. They're drifters. Oh, they might pick up a little bit here and a little bit there, but they're never able to put all of that together to become grounded Christians. And unfortunately, there are many churches that aren't good anchors. They're weak. They give way. They compromise. They never go into enough deep doctrines of the faith to actually ground anybody and hold people down. But this is what a good Bible-believing church does. It gets down into the doctrine of God's Word. It grounds people in the faith. It shows them that they are to serve Christ through the church and then gives them the doctrines that that will help them to grow and plant them deeply in the work that God has given us to do. The church does all of this. It's important for us. Now, uh, what we will do in this church is to teach you the doctrines of the faith instead of preaching a financial series, 10 weeks on a financial series, and 10 weeks on how to parent your children. I mean, if we could do that, if churches can do that, which many of them do, why can't they give the people 25 weeks of a doctrinal series? Why can't they do that? The other things are good. Your finances, great. You need to learn how to handle those. Your children, some of them need to be beat to death probably. You need to handle them. But if you can give all these other series, 10 weeks on this, 10 weeks on that, why in the world can't you give people 25 weeks on doctrine? So the church is the place where we're taught the word. This is what Paul said to Timothy. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, or he said this to the church at Corinth, rather, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in the church. The church is the place where you receive teaching. That's why it's so important. And this is what makes Hebrews 10.25 so important. There it says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. Tabor and I had a conversation about this a few weeks ago, and we were discussing how blessed that we are to have a Bible. Christians, early Christians, 
didn't have the Bible like we have. They didn't have personal care, uh, copies to carry around. Many of them probably had never seen a complete Bible. I mean, especially those in the first century. The Bible wasn't completed till the end of the first century, so they wouldn't have a complete Bible. But even without uh, considering that last book of the Bible that wasn't written till probably somewhere around 90 A.D., still to have a copy of the Bible that had 60 books or one that had 50 books, that, that was not a common thing. And so what people would have to do, they would go to church, and there they would hear the minister read from his copy of the Scriptures. They didn't have their own. So they had to come to church, and they had to come over and over and over and over and over again and keep hearing the Word and then commit that Word to their memory. And that's the way they learned the Word of God. They didn't have a copy of it to keep at home. And it's a sad thing that many Christians ignore God's Word when early Christians would have given their right arm to have a copy of God's Word. Now the Bible then says for the church to assemble, that we are to associate in order to enhance our walk with Christ. And there are advantages to church membership that you can't get anyplace else. Only the church is authorized to baptize. Only the church is authorized to take of the Lord's Supper. Those are things that are impossible to get anywhere, anything anywhere else. Only the church is authorized to make disciples. Only the church is authorized to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things were given to the church in the commission of Christ, and Christ did not authorize anyone else to do it. Now, you'll always find this to be true, that when the commission is taken out of the church and it's handed over to parachurch organizations, of which we don't find any in the Bible, when it's taken away from the church and handed over to them, then the gospel is always compromised. What do you get? You get things like the four spiritual laws. You end up with faith, but nobody talks about repentance. You get baptism without church affiliation. You get the Lord's Supper served in fellowship halls among mixed denominations or, as we saw when we went to Israel, served at the garden tomb among various groups of people pretending to take the supper. Doctrinal discernment fails without the pillar and the ground of the truth. And you just can't squeeze out of the Bible any other option but this, that we are to be members. Every Christian should be a member of the Lord's church. The Lord's church is what keeps decent order. And so very simply, it is unspiritual not to be a member of the Lord's church. It's impossible to be pleasing and glorify God without it. I think that we see that in the commandments. God said that you must worship me in the way that I say to worship. That's the subject was the subject this morning. You can't worship the true God in a false way. And the church just happens to be the New Testament method for worshiping God. So I think this should be firmly established in your minds that Christians are to associate themselves with the church. That's New Testament doctrine. If you can find anything else in the New Testament besides what I've just told you on this issue, please show it to me. We live in the dispensation of the church. That is God's economy for the present time in which we live. Well, let's go just a little bit further. We are to be members of the Lord's church, but what does it take to be a member of the Lord's church? Well, next we want to look at qualifications for membership. Not every person is a member of the church. 
Now, you might think that I would qualify that statement a bit and say that not every Christian is a member of the church. But I do have to broaden that statement because there are many who believe that it is actually possible to be a part of the Lord's church and not be saved, to be unregenerate, and still a person could be a member of the Lord's church. Now, let me show this to you. This is why we do have this S in the acrostic when we have to make it a point to say that we believe in a saved church membership is because other bodies of, of Christians claim something different. And they will tell you, yes, it is possible to be a member of the Lord's church and not yet be saved. And so what do you have to have? Well, first of all, we say that you must have regeneration. You must be regenerate. We hold to a regenerate church membership. So I'm not going to tell you, well, you don't really need to worry about this issue, that if you were born into a Christian family, that you are already a member of the church. The Catholic Church and Protestants teach that being in the right family is good enough. They teach that being baptized as a baby, that's going to make you a part of the church. And the Catholic Church says that baptism is salvation. In 12.13 of the Catechism, it says, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life in the Spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. That's clear, isn't it? Well, we don't have any mistake about what they've said here, what they believe. They're saying that baptism will save you. And so according to them, when you baptize a baby, that baby is saved. And through that, through that baptism, the child becomes a part of the church. So a, a, a Catholic baby born into a Catholic family doesn't have to do anything. There's nothing for the baby to do at all. It's all based upon what the parents do. Uh, the baby's parents have faith. They're what they believe that faith is. So the baby makes no decision at all. Now, baptism then in those churches is involuntary submission to the acts of others. And through that involuntary submission, there comes salvation and church membership. What does that do? It makes the priest the Savior. It makes the church the Savior. It makes them indispensable for a child's salvation because somebody has to do that for them. They have no input into this at all. Their parents bring them. The priest saves them. The church saves them. Now, Protestants will also say that a person can be uh, in the church without faith. Now, at least Catholics recognize that salvation is necessary for church membership they don't know what salvation is, but they say that it is necessary. You do have to have it. And so when they baptize a baby, they say, well, they're saved. That's why they can be in the church. They're saved. Now, Protestants have a little bit different view. Protestants will say, well, no, no. You, you, uh, babies aren't saved in salvation. We don't baptize them in order to save them. But we baptize them in order to bring them into the covenant community. That because their parents are saved and they are we, we baptize these babies to make them a part of the covenant community, which is the church. Now, the Westminster Confession says that the church consists of all believers that profess true religion and their children. So the children, still, they don't have to do anything to be a part of the church. 
This is dependent upon the faith of their parents. That stands good for them. And so the babies then are brought into this covenant relationship through infant baptism. But although members in the covenant, these children that have been baptized, are withheld from church privileges until they are confirmed. And so there will be a ceremony of confirmation, which is about as extra-biblical as the Mass. You can't find that in the Bible. There's no scriptural foundation for it. But if you're making up doctrines as you go along, then what you need is something to take care of this problem. How are you going to get this unregenerate child into the place that he can have church privileges? Well, thus we have confirmation. You bring them up and then you confirm them and then you give them church privileges. You give them the rights. So what Protestants have then are lost people in their membership because they've already admitted that baptism doesn't save. They know they aren't saved. Now I qualify that somewhat because there are some Protestants, such as Lutherans, who do believe in baptismal regeneration. That puzzles me. I can't figure out Luther on this uh, particular issue. But all you need to do is just read their confessions of faith. Ask one of them if you want. They do believe that children are saved in baptism. Now, as Baptists, then, we start right here. We have to start with these proper qualifications. There is no getting into the church unless a person is a regenerate, confessing believer. The act of baptism is not regeneration. Regeneration is the activity of the Holy Spirit that occurs beneath the consciousness. The effect of it is immediate repentance and faith, as our confession of faith says, um, that a person who is regenerated immediately responds with repentance and faith that they are fruits of regeneration. A person that is not regenerate is spiritually dead. And he's not brought to life when he comes in contact with water. You know, I, I think that uh, our grandkids have some of those little things that, I don't know what they are, but they're, they're these little things, you sprinkle a little bit of water on them and they start growing. Well, people think that's what... That's what happens in baptism. You sprinkle a little bit of water on it, all of a sudden it pops up into a Christian. Well, that doesn't happen. Um, so a person who's not regenerate, though, is spiritually dead. He doesn't pop up to life when you get water on him. So it's absurd, then, to think that it would be possible for those that are spiritually dead to be partakers of Christ's body. That's an impossibility. So it takes regeneration. That's what leads us into all other spiritual graces. The scripture says no one can see the kingdom of God without regeneration unless you are born again. You can't see it without repentance and faith. And so how would you ever be a part of the Lord's church? Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom of God unless God through the Holy Spirit moves imperceptibly upon the heart to produce repentance and faith. And so how would you ever become a part of the body of Christ without it? Now since Baptists believe that regeneration immediately produces a penitent faith, we have to reject infant baptism. Now, a baptized infant may, at some time, come to know Christ as Savior, but then again, he may not. And so thus, Protestants will admit that in their churches, they have many, many people that don't know Christ as Savior. Now, it's impossible to squeeze that kind of belief out of the Scripture. They don't squeeze that out of the Scripture A.A. Hodge, in his exposition of the Westminster Confession, said that, or he argues for, infant baptism by inference, not that the Scriptures actually say 
that an infant should be baptized. So he argues for it by inference. And one of his arguments is that it was practiced by the ancients. We don't doubt that. Infant baptism is an old, old doctrine, but it's a heretical doctrine. And heretical doctrines don't get better over the time that you use them. That doesn't make them better. They're still heretical. They're heretical now as they were then. So you can't argue for infant infant baptism because somebody in the past did it. You've got to argue for the scriptural support of it. That's why we have the B in Baptist, biblical authority, because we're not going to take anything else as the authority for what we do. So we take the Bible's position on this. If that makes us different, if it makes us as Baptists different from everybody else, and we have this Baptist acrostic over these things, so be it. We stick with what God's Word says. We're not going to join in with anybody, anybody's opinion, who says this is what God should do. Well, no, what God should do is what the Word says. Well, then we have to ask this question. Is regeneration enough? Is that enough? Now, remember, regeneration is imperceptible. That's a secret work of the Holy Spirit, as John 3, 8 describes. Is it enough? Well, some Baptists equate regeneration with salvation. I do believe that in some cases in the Scripture, those two things are put together. They are so closely related that you can't have one without the other. But regeneration is not actually the same thing as salvation. So that actually leads us into the next things that we need. So we need regeneration, but then we also need confession. Regeneration leads to confession. That's the proof that regeneration has occurred. And so a church member must be one who confesses faith in Christ. Regeneration, of course, assures that that will happen. Infants aren't regenerated in baptism, so and we know they can't be because there's no faith that's associated with it. There is no confession made. There is no recognition of the sacrificial death of Christ for sin. There is no recognition of being lost without Christ, of being condemned and in spiritual death. No recognition of that. And so for a person to become a member of the church, he has to confess that he possesses the common faith that binds us together in the Lord's church. We're not together. We're not together. We're not united to Christ by any other method than by faith in Him. Galatians 3.26 For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So we become children of God by faith. But at this point, we're still not in the church. Now we're getting there. We're going towards that. Regeneration is not church membership. Confession is not church membership. They're necessary components of it, but we're not quite there yet. Now the person who confesses Christ then meets this particular requirement. His faith shows that He's agreed on what salvation is. Now, we can't accept a Roman Catholic's confession because he believes that baptism saves him. He believes that his work saves him. He believes the works of others save him. He believes salvation is maintained through rituals and penances and confession to priests and mass and on and on it goes. So he doesn't witness a good confession. Paul explained that all those other things are damnable doctrines. And he said, anybody who believes that's the way that you're saved, he is anathema, means accursed. 
He's cursed because he believes those things. So no one who teaches a soul-damning or believes a soul-damning doctrine can be a part of the Lord's church. Now, likewise, whether or not a person is Catholic, anyone who believes that he has any part in his salvation that doesn't believe that it's only by faith in Christ alone, Christ only, anybody who doesn't believe that, neither can be a part of the Lord's church. And so what a person must show is credible evidence of a confession of faith in Christ before he can become a member of the Lord's church. And so the person must confess Christ. He can't be a silent Christian. Otherwise, we have no idea that he's a Christian at all. So he can't be a silent Christian. He must open his mouth in order to confess what he believes. So what we don't do is we we don't permit membership to people who say, you know, I just want to be a part of something. I see what you got here. And you you people, you know, you seem to like each other. And you've got this thing going on, this social thing going on. And I sure would like to be a part of that. And I would like to teach kids. And, And I would like to help people in the community. I'd like to be a part of that. I want to help my fellow man. That's great. But what do you believe? And you have many people that are working in churches. Nobody ever asks them, what do you believe? We always ask that question. Every interview for membership starts there. It begins with a testimony of salvation. What do you believe? Are you saved? What does being saved mean? Those are questions that have, the right, have to have the right answer. And then I would go a step further that the church has to be a place of unity. There can't be any divisions. And so the confession of faith must also be a confession of agreement with other doctrines that the church teaches. We can't be at each other's throats over our doctrine. And so I always ask people, do you agree with us? I often get this answer, well, I don't really understand it all. And that's okay, because then the next question comes, are you willing to be taught? Are you willing to come under the authority of the church of being taught the right interpretation of Scripture? You see, we don't want people like the radio host that just have an opinion of something. And never, not anything that that opinion is actually anchored to. They have no authority for it. So that's what it takes to witness a good confession. It's a confession that agrees with the church's stand on the Bible. And we have the right to keep from church membership anybody that we say does not agree with the teachings of the Lord's church. Now that leads us next to another qualification, and that is holiness. Holiness is a lifestyle issue. That takes us back to 2 Corinthians 6 and the requirement that we are to be separate, that we're being sanctified, that we are being set apart from the world. What you can't do is you can't bring your baggage of sin into the church. Your sin's not welcome. Obviously, we, we can't see secret sins. That's impossible. We don't know about that. But whenever there is sin that is outward, we can and we should say, you've got to leave your sin behind. You can't come into the church with that. That's not an unreasonable request. And it's not because we do know this. We, we've learned that the regenerate, those who are actually regenerate, follow Christ. They purify themselves. Is that what we read? So we couldn't accept their sin in the church because that's an indication they don't even know Christ. A person who does purifies himself. He, turn, he, he turns from sin. 
Now, unholy people, the reason we can't let them into the church is because they have a terrible effect on the church. The church can never rise above the level of its individual membership. And so the church itself would be in danger of being set aside from Christ, being separated from Him, if we don't separate ourselves from the world. So unholy people are not going to follow the Scriptures. Denominations struggle over these things. They struggle over gay marriage and gay membership because the leadership may be gay. Unregenerate people abandon the Scriptures just like their leadership does. Now in another lesson, as I've said, we're going to discuss church discipline and what the church is required to do when we find these kinds of things in the church. We have to screen out those that don't have a good reputation. When we discover something is wrong, then we move to have the wrong corrected. As a last resort, if there is no confession, if there's no repentance, there has to be exclusion. Even if that person is a state politician, if he's immoral, he can't be a part of the Lord's church. So holiness is a biblical prescription for admission into the Lord's church. Second Corinthians 6 said that. And how many other New Testament passages do we read that speak of holiness so every time that you see the word saint sanctified sanctification those are words that have their root in holiness when paul or others were writing letters to the churches the epistles they addressed the saints they prefaced their letters with holiness paul began romans saying in verse number seven of chapter one called to be saints. When he said that, it's the same as saying, called to be holy, called to be separated to Christ. I hope that you remember that. When your name goes on the church roll, this is what you promise. I will live a sanctified, holy life. I will be a saint. You know, we often hear people make half-hearted attempts at humility. They'll start to talk about someone and the wrongs that they've done. And then they'll pause just a moment and they'll say, but I'm no saint. A church member should never say that. I'm no saint. Why aren't you a saint? That's what you're supposed to be. If you aren't a saint, why aren't you? If you're not, if you're not a saint, get out of the church. Do us the common decency. Just leave if you aren't a saint because that's what we are. We're called to be saints. Now, on that note, let's close out the lesson with the last requirement, and that is baptism. You can't get into the church without baptism. Baptism is also a confession. It's an outward demonstration of faith. And very importantly, as it regards that last point about holiness, it is a picture of you being dead to your old way of life and then rising to walk in the new life of Christ. In other words, baptism is a picture of people made holy. Now, I don't need to go back into the salvation issues again. Baptism is not salvation, but it is required for church membership. Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we see one more time that baptism is the way that people were added to the church. And I'm going to talk about that in another part, so we're not going to deal with it, with it here. We'll save the discussion for then. But I just wanted to get it in here under the qualifications just to make this point. Uh, anybody who is straddling the fence on baptism and a person says, well, I'm saved, 
but you, but you haven't been baptized, you don't have an option for baptism either. The Bible commands that. The Bible commands association of Christians in the Lord's churches, and you can't get there without baptism. Without baptism, you are disobedient to the Lord. Now, you wouldn't have very much trouble reasoning this thing out if I start talking to you about adultery. If I said adultery is sin, you can't be an adulterer and be a part of the church. You're not going to argue with me about that. That's pretty clear in Scripture. That Ten Commandment, number seven. You can't be an adulterer. If I said, well, you can't steal. You can't steal and be a member of the church. Notwithstanding the fact that many people steal from God all the time with their tithes and offerings, we would still say, you can't steal and be a member of the church. And you would agree with me. You have no problem with that. Stealing is wrong. That's the Eighth Commandment, isn't it? You can't steal. You can't do that and be a part of the church. Well, what if I tell you that baptism is just as much a command as those two? Baptism is just a command, as much a command of the Lord Jesus Christ as all of the Ten Commandments are. And so you can't be a part of the Lord's church without obeying His commandments. And if you don't obey the commandments, you are being disobedient to Christ. And most of you and here are baptized members of the Lord's church. And so you're just getting a, an earful of information on these things. Maybe you can pass it along to someone else. And someday maybe you will take this information and be able to teach it to others. I mean, that's another thing that we do here. We keep going over and over this information so that you also, as saints of God, can be ministers to others to teach them the Word of God. You ought to be discipling somebody. Teach somebody else the Word of God. So you come and you learn these things and get this information again. But here's the thing. Disobedience to God, what will that do? It disproves faith. How are you ever going to prove to anybody that you are a believer in Jesus Christ unless you obey Him? So every disobedience disproves faith. So an unbaptized person doesn't show that he's actually a believer. Once again, 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So keep thinking about that, and we'll come back to baptism again later. So each true church is a body of Christ. There are many across the world. And what Christians are to do is to seek one that he can associate with in the fellowship of the gospel. And you can't do that unless you meet all of the qualifications. So where do we start? Well, we start with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we actually have that relationship? You have to start with that. Are you a Christian by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you are, then what comes next is the Lord will lead you to that baptism which he commands, which in turn makes you a part of the Lord's church, gives you that association with his body. So if you're, if you're saved and baptized, I don't know if anybody here is going to qualify for this statement, but if you're saved and baptized, but you're no longer a member of a church, or for some reason you're out of a church, maybe been disfellowshipped or whatever it might be, those are issues that need to be corrected. Free and Baptist Church then would be a good place to learn about those things and get those types of things corrected. And so that's what we're studying here about church membership, how to do all the things that I say need to be done in order to serve the Lord effectively in his church. So this is what Berean Baptist Church promises to do. We promise to teach you what you should do. How are you going to grow in the faith? So we're going to teach the word of God. We'll teach you to give your life 
for the glory of Christ. The S is church membership, which is where the saved in the church is where the saved gather to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the time we've had to look into your word tonight. As we look over our congregation tonight, uh, we do believe on a holiday weekend, uh, these folks are saved, committed church members, wouldn't be here if they weren't. But we hope, Lord, that we've opened up something in the word of God that causes us to think that we learn doctrine and how to defend that doctrine by looking at the word of God. So if, if this is the most important thing that comes out of the message tonight, then that's good. Uh, we appreciate the ability to be able to teach your word and show people support for these doctrines that we as Baptists believe. Lord, help us to stand on them. Help us to grow in the faith, be strong in the faith, and to be committed church members. That's the way we glorify you. Bless us, Lord. Give, us, uh, give everyone a good uh, holiday tomorrow and then bring us back into your house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org